I preached this sermon on Pentecost Sunday 2016. We were in the midst of a contentious presidential campaign and creating extra havoc in North Carolina was the recent passage of the Public Facilities Privacy and Security Act, commonly known as House Bill 2 or HB2. Opponents of the bill described it as the most anti-LGBT legislation in the United States. The other side said it's just common sense. Portions of the bill were overturned a year later when Roy Cooper defeated incumbent Pat McCrory in the race for governor. In that bill, many North Carolinians were essentially introduced to the idea of the transgender person. And arguments for and against transgender rights were roiling the airwaves and social media nonstop. As Amy and I have prepared this summer's series of re-preached sermons, 20 years now and re-preaching 10 sermons in this second decade, a second top 10, we have been consistently amazed at how, as things change, well, things just remain the same. We're in another contentious election season and transgender rights are still in the news. Two weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled on a case deciding in favor of a transgender woman and thus providing protection for gay and transgender persons in the workplace. In this historic decision, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the 1964 Civil Rights Act, barring discrimination, quote, based on sex, does in fact protect gay, lesbian, and transgender employees from discrimination in the workplace. Though many saw this as a defeat for Donald Trump and his administration, as his two appointees to the Supreme Court voted with the majority. This is a current issue. It's a contentious and controversial issue. It has come to many of our own families, many of our own churches across this country. There are many misunderstandings. There's much anger and contention with one another as we try to understand. Many ministers would never choose to preach on this subject. Most would probably not take the approach you heard at this pulpit in 2016 and we'll hear again today, but we celebrate an open pulpit at Park Road Baptist Church and we stand unwavering in the welcome and inclusion of all people. So even today, in the heat of this summer, physical heat, emotional heat, let us pray for the breath of God's Spirit that Pentecost might come again today and lead us to love all people as God loves all people. The story I'm about to read to you from Genesis is confusing and confounding. In our men's study group one morning, we were looking at this text and one of the men said in an exasperated voice, if God really did this, well, this just ticks me off. Well, let me read it for you. And I think you will be able to understand the frustration he was feeling. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad on the face of the whole earth. Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the, there over the face of the earth, and they left off building that city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the languages of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over all of the face of the earth. Wow, interesting story. There's not a picture in Scripture that I know of anywhere that depicts people who seem to have gotten their act better together than this story. Just imagine the people had one language and the same words. There were no communication barriers. They had migrated together and had settled in order to build community. They knew strength was in their numbers. They didn't want to be scattered, so they stopped to build the world's very first city. Instead of warring among themselves, as we see throughout ancient and modern history, they used their gifts for a common purpose. They worked diligently together, intent on making a name for themselves. And the Bible says a good name is more desirable than great riches. Now while the tower they were raising seems to have been the initial source of God's curiosity and concern, they were not building, please excuse me, I said in 2016, they were not building Trump Tower. The text does not say they were working to make a name for one of them for their leader, for the richest of them, for the most popular. They were working to make a name for the people, all of them together. I was taught that this tower was the centerpiece of presumption and arrogance, but I believe it deserves to be considered otherwise. There's nothing in the text to indicate that the people sought to supplant God by their industrious ambition. Maybe the tower was to stand as a symbol of their hard work, a monument to cooperation. Maybe the tower was to point to the heavens as an architectural pen to the praise of God. The founding pastor of this church used to look at the magnificent steeple on the top of this building and call it a finger of strength pointing to God. Maybe that's how the people thought of their tower. This is a grand picture of unity and common purpose. 
It's a reminder that we need so much today, frighteningly divided as we are. I said this in 2016, and think about how much worse it's gotten today. Divided as we are by partisan ideologies, socioeconomic strata, racial identities, cultural expressions, religious convictions, some things never change. This ancient tale reminds us of our country's motto, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. We need to be reminded that united we stand and scattered we fall. Well, in the midst of this incredible picture of beautiful humanity at work, God's words are just stunning. Now, many of us were raised in the Protestant tradition, which still lurks in the long and menacing shadows of John Calvin's theology, which managed to shame the church into a paralyzing guilt due to the innate wickedness of the human creature. Calvin called it the depravity of man. There is nothing good in us. We are black to the heart of our souls. We will always be selfish. We will never work together, not of our own initiative. We will always build our towers in place of God, creating idols of arrogance. John Calvin thought we were helpless and worse than helpless, harmful to ourselves and others without the dramatic intervention of God. But I don't know how Calvin overlooked this story, which affirms the inherent worth the infinite power that has been bequeathed to us. God's own word challenged Calvin's despairing theology. God says, this is just the beginning. Nothing they choose to do will be impossible. Look at them. What an incredible affirmation of our human potential. So, God says, let's go down there. we got to put an end to this. Makes you want to scratch your head, doesn't it? Shake your fist or say with a little more, uh, with a little condescension to God, what don't you understand about this, God? This is a good thing. Can't you see what a good thing this is? I spent nine years working at a summer camp. Craziness abounded among the staff members of the camp, and we always had crazy sayings that we were saying to one another. And one of those sayings was etched on the walls of one of the cabins. The words, too much of a good thing is still not enough. Well, actually, too much of a good thing is too much. And God could see what a good thing it was the people were doing in Babel but God also knew that too much of a good thing is too much. Having been created in the image of God, human beings have the power to accomplish all things. But God also knows, looking across human history, that we have never been able to handle too much of a good thing. So that one language they enjoy. When we have had one language, it has always been used ultimately to enforce conformity. Heil Hitler comes to mind. And what would be wrong with having the same language but allowing people to use different words? No, we've never been able to trust that. Look at North Korea today. It's not just an army that marches in precise lockstep the words of a starving population praise 
a brutal dictator. They had one language. Or what would be wrong with using the same words in a different language? Well, we've got this fight going on in the U.S. these days, this anti-immigrant hatred that says, well, they need to learn our language if they're going to come here. But what exactly would be wrong with the world's greatest melting pot, the world's most successful immigrant democracy, learning to speak another language? You know what you call somebody who speaks three languages? Trilingual. And you know what you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you call someone who speaks one language? An American. What would be wrong with us learning to speak another language? No, human beings don't trust diversity. Diversity is a dangerous thing. You know, if we let them use their own words, before long they'll be thinking their own thoughts, and we can't have that. But what about that tower they were building? Well, no matter the intent, it will always end up with someone's name emblazoned on it. Have human beings ever proven we could handle too much of a good thing? We have not. And the story of Babel knows that. So God says, look, they are one people. But apparently God wants many Obvious from this story, God prefers the beauty of diversity. A few years ago, when our youth performed the play Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, they learned to sing about that coat. We had printed those words in our bulletin four years ago. It was made of many colors, red and yellow and green and brown and scarlet and black and ochre and peach and ruby and olive and violet and fawn and lilac and gold and chocolate and mauve and cream and crimson and silver and rose and azure and lemon and russet and gray and purple and white and pink and orange and blue. God loves the beauty of difference. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in God's sight. Republican and libertarian and democrat, rich and poor, Capitalist and communist, gay and straight, bisexual and transgender. Now, though God loves diversity, you cannot read the Bible, even this confounding story, and think that God has anything but the best of intentions for us. You know, God confused them, scattered them, but we can't think that God had anything but the best of intentions ultimately. Yet the Jewish scriptures follow the narrative of God and one people, one people God has chosen for whom God intends to bless all nations. It's there in the very next chapter of Genesis when God calls Abram and Sarah. The Jewish people trace the love of God for this small band of Hebrew immigrants, one particular people who traipse all across the ancient Middle East, getting it right and getting it wrong and finding God's forgiveness and starting up over again and again and again. And then we come to the Christian narrative that says God took that same initiative, another giant step. It looks as if God realizes we're having a hard time with being one chosen people and one set of laws. And so God comes down this time and pitches a tent among us to live with us 
to help us live in abundance by knowing what it means to wear our skin and even die our death. My point is just this, that you cannot say God does not want us to succeed. Scripture is clear, God is involved with humanity from start to finish. You can't say God's final intent was to confuse us. But every good parent and teacher knows that children do not learn when we succeed easily. Don't succeed when we are just given everything. Success comes from working hard for something worthwhile and from learning the beauty of diversity, other thoughts, other ways. So God says, let us confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech unless they work at it. And this brings us to the story of Pentecost found in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Now, no offense to any Pentecostal Christians, but I don't know how Pentecostals derive their belief in speaking in tongues from this Pentecostal story. The story never says or even implies that there was some new ecstatic utterance spoken that day. There was no glossolalia speaking in tongues. What the Lebanese heard in Jerusalem that day was a Galilean speaking Lebanese. The Romans heard a Galilean speaking Latin. The visitors from Asia heard Galilean speaking Turkish or Bulgarian or Japanese. So many sermons I've heard say that Pentecost was the reversal of the confused tongues of Babel. You know, at Babel, the whole earth had one language, but God confused and confounded that language into many languages until God brought them back together at Pentecost with one language, the ecstatic language of tongues. But that's not what the text says. At Pentecost, God did not bring them back to one language. What we have in this story is a much greater miracle. What we have is the equivalent of a native-born U.S. citizen learning to speak to our Hispanic roofers and brick masons and day laborers in Spanish. God didn't overcome the people's intractable problems by miraculously putting one language back into all of their mouths, but somehow, for just a moment, those Galilean followers of a Jesus whose resurrection had changed their world, they learned that we don't need one language. We need to learn to understand one another's language. You see, nature loves diversity, which is exactly what God gave us at Babel 
and what God affirmed for us at Pentecost. We are living through a crucial, if excruciating, moment in American life. The changes that have come in recent years are long, long overdue. Every culture known to history has had homosexual members. Dealing with these members of the human family is nothing new. But the political movement that has swept the nation in 10 or 20 years, in just a few years, introducing the idea of marriage equality and then making it the law of the land, well, the speed of that moment has been overwhelming to many. I do understand that. And I know that change does not come easy. This is especially true if your frame of reference to the world is always looking back. I preached this sermon originally in May of 2016, and it is now clear to a number of commentators that the election of that year, of perhaps the least qualified but most controversial and divisive leader the nation has ever known, is a backlash to the speed of change we have experienced in just a few short decades. It is a sign of fear. A clear signal of the anxiety of a nation was a deliberate campaign to make America like it used to be. Let's go back. When people are afraid, they always turn back. But the future will always be in front of us. The Supreme Court struck down the ban on same-sex marriage in June of 2015. And just on the heels of that decision, the country was introduced to an issue that was new even to some of the most progressive among us. It happened in cities around the country as it happened to the Charlotte City Council when a non-discrimination ordinance, House Bill 2, unfortunately labeled the bathroom bill, brought the word transgender into our televisions and laptops and iPhones. The blogosphere and the ever-dying print media have exploded with stories and explanations, experts and uninformed pundits. Almost overnight, the veneer which has conveniently concealed the lives and struggles of transgender children from the rest of us, that veneer was ripped off. But nature loves diversity. God loves diversity, a lot more of it than most people can admit. The abundance of scientific research and the stories of so many of God's beloved children make clear the incredible variety and range of God's creativity. Perhaps this is nowhere more uncomfortably obvious to some than in the variety of gender and sexual expression. But we are going to have to come to grips with the reality of an animal kingdom and a human family that never has, never has conformed to one language of sexual expression. Binary diversity, male, in a Wednesday night discussion that followed this sermon, we talked about the sexual diversity found across the animal kingdom, including in humans. I will be glad to share some of that night's conversation with you if you are interested. And yes, I do know that the Bible says God created them male 
and female. But this will hardly be the first time culture has changed, opening our eyes with the change, and we in the church have had to learn to read our beloved scripture differently. Scary though it may be, as we learn to read anew, as we begin to hear the sounds of other languages of experience, we must pray for the hope of Pentecost again. The first philosophical thought I ever had, I was a child, and I had this thought. What color is this? It's green, of course. But does the green that I see actually look in my head the same as the green that you see? Or maybe what I see that looks green actually looks like red to you. But we've just all learned to call this green and that red confusing, huh? I bring that up just because it's not at all clear what it was that the people from around the world heard that day on Pentecost. Were those Galileans whose native language was Aramaic, were they actually speaking Turkish or Greek or Lebanese? Or were the brains of those Turks and Greeks and Lebanese just actually able to hear Aramaic in a new way? a way that made it sound like a language they knew. I will never speak the transgender language, nor the homosexual language. I will never speak African American. I will never be able to speak the language of being a woman. I will never be able to speak those words. But that's not really the point. The point is that somehow, in the miracle of Pentecost, God takes all the beautiful variety of our expressions, our voices, our very different languages, and somehow, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of And when we hear, when we finally learn to hear one another, Nothing we propose to do will be impossible. Nothing. May it be so.